Welcome to No Baller. It is Thursday, May 13th, and I am Chris Rawl. On today's show, a discussion of the things that can be measured in sports and the things that cannot. All that on the other side of a word from our presenting sponsor, Traeger Grills. With your masquerading and you. Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. Not everything can be measured. Not everything can be known. That's where we're going to start today's episode. On the one hand, I love the measurement of things. And I'll preface what I'm about to tell you by saying I am definitely not a serial killer. Because you'll hear this story and you'll say that guy definitely has a bunch of bodies piled up in his basement. And I want to assure you, I do not. However, when I was young, one of the things that I loved was cutting out newspaper box scores. And pasting them into empty notebooks. And I just paste all these box scores of my favorite teams and games, and I'd go over them. And then in other notebooks, I would write down numbers that I liked. I'd go, ooh, Amon Green had 150 yards. And I'd write it down. It was just something that I enjoyed doing when I was eight years old. And it formed a bond that I have to present day with the numbers side of sports and the measurement side of sports. How do you measure a player's performance? How do you measure a team's performance? Things that I find to be very enjoyable. On the flip side of that, I also understand and acknowledge that there are a lot of unknowns in life and in sports. And that's, in my opinion, a a great blessing, you know. Uh, When you understand that it's impossible to measure everything, it it turns life into sort of an open-ended book. And you go and, and pick and choose what you want and interpret it in the way that you want. And that's how you find joy or happiness or all these other emotions that we want to have as a part of our daily discourse. And that's a gift. And when I see it within the world of sports, I kind of feel a little bit similar because at their best, sports are a blend of the known and the unknown, the measured and the unmeasured. The statistical nerd who thinks that every number is straight from the mouth of God And the old 300-year-old scout who only trusts in his gut instinct and screw you if you think otherwise. It's a blend of those two people. I skew a little bit more to the numbers side, but I also acknowledge and like that there are a lot of things about sports that can't actually be quantified. So it's the blend of science and the spiritual. That's what sports are for me. So when I talk about this blend of the numbers side of everything and the unquantifiable side of everything. I think of my own progression and how I interpret box score statistics and how those have progressed over the course of my life. I don't have to go back very far to think about the way that my relationship with numbers has changed. The Oregon football team under Chip Kelly, they burst onto the scene less than 15 years ago. And they played this really high pace of offense, which was revolutionary for the time. They're putting points up 
They're putting yards up. We haven't really seen anything like it. And simultaneous to that, their defense, who is on the field much more than your average defense for much more possessions in a game because of how fast their offense was playing, they're giving up points and they're giving up yards. Not to the same extent as their offense, but still, we would get to the end of games. And me, a college football fan in my early 20s, who thought that I had a brain and and valued myself as somebody who was willing to think and engage with stuff that I don't necessarily think and engage with, I would watch their games and say, this defense isn't good. You can't win a national title with this defense. We'd get to the end of a game, and it's 58-31 Oregon, and I'd go, yeah, that's great. The offense, they're, they're awesome, but they gave up 31 points. They gave up 480 yards. You can't do this and win at the highest level. And so over the course of this time, smart people, people who are smarter than me, they, they come to the forefront and they say, well, their defense isn't as bad as the raw box score total indicates. Yes, the yards and the points are high, but if you say, how many yards are they giving up per possession? How many points are they giving up per play? Things that weed out the pace of a football game and take away the fact that Oregon's defense would play four extra possessions rather than what another team was playing. When you started to dive into numbers like that, not these really far-fetched analytical numbers, but but simple concepts that I immediately was able to grasp, I would look at that and go, oh, this defense is actually a lot better than I thought when I dive slightly below the surface of the raw statistics. That's something that I really liked, and that expands my understanding of the game of football. So then I start going further and further, and I say, well, yeah, let's learn more about what numbers will allow me to expand my understanding of the game. And I do that across all sports. And some I really love. Another one within the game of football that's recently become more popular is success rate. Just how much success you are having on a per play basis. You know, this stuff helps you understand a game in a much more knowledgeable manner than just looking at how many yards did you have at the end of the game? How many points did you have at the end of the game? Okay, this team was good and this team was not. It, it, it speaks to the process. If you, on average, are having more successful plays than the other team, that's a sustainable process for future success. It doesn't always come to fruition within a game, but if you continually do that over the course of time, on average, you'll be better than your opposition. I think about ice hockey and the rise of statistics that tie into possession of the puck, which, logically speaking, I didn't really think about even less than a decade ago. But the idea that the more you possess the puck, the more that you will have the opportunity to create scoring chances, which in turn means the more you will actually be able to score, that's a really logical progression. And when you have numbers that take you through every step of that, hey, how many shots on goal did you have when you were on the ice with your teammates? How many shots against did the other team have while you were on the ice? That's a Corsi percentage. It's not the be-all, end-all, but it's a good indicator of, okay, you're possessing the puck a lot more than the other team. That's a good process. And if you continually do that, that'll set yourself and your team up for success. There's a lot of numbers that we're, that we're banding about and continuing to experiment with in present day. And some of them I think are awesome. And they expand our understanding of these games. And others, they're a lot more murky in what they mean. And a lot of times 
almost dilute our understanding as we're going to get into in this discussion. I'm going to start with a quote from Zach Cram at The Ringer. Even the most advanced tracking systems can't capture a player's fit with his coaches, teammates, and defensive system. Even if we had all the data we wanted, says ESPN's Kevin Pelton, I don't know if we'd ever be able to isolate an individual's impact as easily on defense as on offense, because so much of it is scheme-dependent. End quote. So it's impossible to measure the dirty work, which I like. Again, I like this blend of science and spirit. The parts that we can quantify with numbers and the parts that we just have to watch a game and make up our own opinions and, and interpret our own understanding of what that player did. Dirty work is a word that's always thrown around. And it just means all of the plays that you can't really put into a box score or into an advanced metric tracking system. It's diving on the floor for a loose ball. It's being in the right place at the right time and just altering an opponent's shot, not necessarily blocking it or stealing it because we can track that. It's just being in the right place and making an opponent's shot 1% harder, 2% harder. And if you do that consistently over the course of time, that's a sustainable process. It places value on watching a game, which is something that I'm always passionate about. I find myself frustrated in present day that we feel comfortable watching a sports center clip of a really cool block or a sweet still and forming an opinion off of that one tiny tidbit. That person's good at defense. That person's good at offense. And in actuality, that's just one play out of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions, depending on who the person is. And so you need numbers and yet you also need to watch games in order to piece these things together and form your own opinion on who is good, who is bad, and for the most part, where people fall between those two lines. I'm continually fascinated by things like this, trying to measure an individual's impact on defense, especially on the perimeter. It's really, really hard to do, as this Kevin Pelton statement shows. You don't know the scheme. You don't know what the coaches want. You don't know the defensive system in general. You need to be part of that staff in order to understand those things. So I could watch film of a player and think this person made the mistake. And then if I went to them and the coaches, they would go, no, they played that correctly. They were doing what the scheme demanded. And in actuality, the mistake was made three rotations earlier by this other person. And that's why they were hung out to dry. Those are things we can't really understand nor track. It's like when we try to make up our minds about offensive line play in the NFL. I don't know what a good offensive lineman is. I have no idea. I could watch a million snaps of one individual offensive lineman and not be able to tell how good or bad that player was. Uh, there's a lot of nuance that goes into understanding something like that. And I don't possess that. And I kind of like that I don't possess that because it's the blend of the things that I love about sports. I'm going to read to you another quote from Zach Cram at The Ringer that ties into the process that I'm talking about. Shane Battier was a stud defender in the early statistical revolution, and he recalls one game in which he executed his game plan against Carmelo Anthony, but the star score still went off. He scored 50 points on my head, was absolutely torching me, and he had zero paint points, Battier says. His defensive process was 100% right, he says. The outcome, which you can't control, was an unbelievable performance, end quote. 
So we pile on Carmelo Anthony in present day because he's kind of just a, a walking shell of what he once was. But in his prime, that dude could put the ball in the bucket. He's one of the best isolation scorers of his era. Shane Batty was one of the better individual defenders of his era. And this goes into why individual defense is so hard to quantify, especially on the perimeter. It's about process. And a lot of times process does not equal results on the defensive side of basketball. You can have a game like Shane Battier where he goes, listen, I defended the hell out of Carmelo Anthony and I didn't allow him to get to the paint. And despite that, he still scored 50 points because sometimes the very best offense is just going to trump anything you do on defense. You can't block every shot. You can't steal every pass. And so you are up to whether or not that shot goes in. You can, over the course of time, if your process is correct, you can ensure that that person shoots a lower percentage than they would against another defender. But beyond that, if your process is right, that's all you can trust in. It speaks to something that I am passionate about and love within my own life, the game of golf, which is a sport that's entirely built around process. You have to trust in that in order to stay sane on the golf course, especially if you're playing every day for money and, and competing in tournaments. When you can play what in your mind is the same round, the quality of your ball striking is the same, the quality of your short game, your chipping around the greens, your bunker shots, your putting, the process is there continually, especially at a professional level, uh, but sometimes even for me with it at an amateur level. And you'll go through a bunch of rounds and you go, my process was correct and it was good. And I was continually hitting shots how I wanted on and off the greens. And sometimes that doesn't result in a good score. What you think should be a 70 is a 78. It'll drive you insane. Unless you allow yourself to trust in that process. If you follow golf at a high level, this is one of the main principles that is always preached for people who get really into the game that you have to be about process. That's why you'll see professional golfers just go and they'll hit the same chip shot three gazillion times. So when they're in a situation that has all these things around them that are foreign, all they do is trust in the process. They say, it's a 75-yard wedge shot. I know I need to land it here. My caddy will walk it off. I've hit this unbelievable amounts of times in my life. And I'll trust in the process that, I, that I've laid the groundwork there for. And it's going to come to fruition here in this tournament. It's something that's really cool about the game of golf. And I like when it expands into other sports because I don't think we think about process as much within hockey or basketball or football in a way that we do with golf. And yet this Battier quote, it really speaks to me because Battier acknowledges mm, on the defensive side of the ball, it is about process and that will not always result in you shutting down a person. And, and indeed, you could play your best defense and Carmelo Anthony can still score 50 points on you. That's a really interesting part of sports. And that's a really interesting part of consuming and watching a game. I've had this exact situation where I watch a game and I go, man, I think that guy played pretty good defense continually, but LeBron still scored 40 against him because it's LeBron. And because... He can just do things much like Carmelo could do. Sometimes offense is just going to trump you. You'll see people try to guard Steph Curry and actually do a really good job of it. And he hits a 35-foot step back. You don't sit there and cry about that. You go, I played 
damn good defense. And if I continually do that, Steph Curry, he can't possibly do this over and over and over and over. I'm going to read to you another quote from Zach Cram because he has a lot of things that I think are very interesting about this discussion. In baseball, a sport with much less situational dependency, a poor center fielder in Dodger Stadium will always be a poor center fielder in Petco Park. Yet in the NBA, a big man might struggle in an aggressive blitzing scheme but post stellar numbers if he plays drop coverage. In 2017-18, ESPN's Real Plus Minus ranked Brook Lopez, then with the Lakers, as the worst defensive center in the league. Two seasons later, playing for a new team with a new coach in a new style, he ranked third, was named to an all-defensive team, and helped the Bucks post one of the stingiest defensive marks in league history. End quote. Fantastic example from Zach Cram, this Brooke Lopez situation. It speaks to something I continually preach on this show, that situation is nearly everything for the vast majority of players. And how do you possibly measure situation? ESPN's Real Plus Minus, a statistic that is regularly cited, and for good reason. I do think it has a lot of things that are, that are good about it. Brooke Lopez in the Lakers scheme with not a lot of talent. They're asking him to blitz people. A man who is known for not very fast foot speed and a lumbering style of play. And he's rated as the worst defensive center in the league. And two seasons later on Milwaukee, they go, we don't ask you to do this because this does not suit your skill set. You can't blitz people. You don't have any speed. So what do we want from a big lumbering man who is seven feet tall? We want you to play drop coverage. We want you to do what the Jazz do with Rudy Gobert. All you need to do is worry about when people come into the paint, you've dropped there, and you're going to make life hard for them to shoot over you there. And just simply based upon that transition, a new scheme, a new style, a new coach, within this metric, ESPN's real plus minus, Brooke Lopez goes from last in the league to third best. He's named to an all-defensive team. How do you measure situation? You can't. That's what is great about sports. The blend of the numbers and the blend of the spiritual side of the game and the watching the side of the game and interpreting it in whatever way you see fit. I think about our local team, the Jazz, who have a great team defense that is structured around Rudy Gobert. And and I see something like this and I wonder, what would we think about certain players on the Jazz roster? Let's say Royce O'Neal, who I think everybody agrees is a good defender, or Joe Ingles, who I think everybody agrees is a good defender, albeit not as good of a one as Royce O'Neal. What would we think about those players, and what would their metrics show if they were playing on the Magic, or the Bulls, or the Kings? And how much of our interpretation of that player's defense is tied into the fact that they play on the Utah Jazz, and Rudy Gobert is continually playing drop coverage at the highest level, And they're not necessarily asked to do a lot of stuff outside of their comfort zone. It's a very interesting food for thought tidbit when we have these hardline stances on who is good at defense and who is bad at defense, especially amongst people that it's really, really, really hard to tell how much of it is just their scheme and how much of it is them. Joe Ingles is a great example of that. Would we think Joe Ingles is a good defender if he's running around the court with the Kings, the worst defensive team in the league? I don't know. His metrics would probably say that he is a bad defender if he were on that team. 
And, and that's all just tied into situation and fit. I'm going to read one more quote from Zach Cram. This season, a blocker steal occurs once every eight possessions league-wide, meaning each player averages just one block or steal out of every 40 possessions. This leaves 39 out of 40 possessions in which the defender in question doesn't record either statistic, but he's still contributing, or not contributing, somehow. Tracking provides gobs of data, but different analysts have different opinions on what information matters and what is random noise, end quote. Even expert analysis is never as clean as we want it to be. This is true in life. We've seen that over the course of this pandemic as the CDC has had to hammer out in real time what is true, what is false, what should the population be doing when it comes to the coronavirus. And we've seen opinion and and what we're supposed to be doing change gradually in stages because even at that level, the smartest people in the world who have gone to school for who knows how many years and they're trying to solve this problem in real time, they have a lot of information at their fingertips. But even amongst that crowd, different analysts are going to have different opinions on what information matters there and what is just white noise. It's really cool when it comes to sports because now we have tracking information in untold amounts. And numbers in untold amounts. And so you have statistical models popping up left and right. And they're coming all from really smart people. And yet some of them we go, "Ah, I really like that. But then this one, I don't know. These numbers don't speak to what I'm seeing necessarily on the field or on the court or on the rink. And so we have to wade through what information does matter. And even at an expert level, they're doing the exact same thing that us fans at a casual level are doing. So Zach Cram, he has a big table within this article that I've been citing from that was incredibly fascinating to somebody like me because the whole purpose of the article is talking about it's really hard to measure individual defensive impact. And we have a lot of statistical models that that attempt to do this And yet, based upon the different analysts having different opinions, we're getting conflicting opinions on who is good and who is bad in an area that is really hard to quantify. So he pulls numbers from five different defensive metrics when it comes to individual defensive impact. And these are five of the most commonly cited metrics. Real plus minus from ESPN, Raptor from 538, estimated plus minus from Dunks and Threes, Regular, regularized adjusted plus minus from NBA shot charts and LeBron from B-Ball Index. So don't get swamped in these nerdy ass names. Uh, just understand that these are metrics that are continually used to show how good a player is defensively. So there's five different systems. And yet, even within these systems, we have players with an incredibly high variance between whether or not they are good or whether or not they are bad. We have someone like Patty Mills, who is as high as the 95th percentile in one and as low as the third percentile in another. Alex Crusoe, 99th percentile, 23rd percentile. Derek Rose, 94th to 11th. Andre Drummond, 94th to 28th. These are enormous discrepancies between one statistical system saying this person is a great defender. Alex Crusoe in the 99th percentile and another saying 
he's actually a bad defender. He's in the 23rd percentile. So how do you make sense of all of those things? This points to the side of sports that it's really hard to measure. How do you measure the impact of somebody like Alex Caruso, a perimeter defender who doesn't have a lot of blocks and a lot of steals, and his job is to get in the shorts of the best perimeter offensive player on the other team and make their life hard? Sometimes he does a good job of that, and sometimes he doesn't. How do you quantify something like that? On the other side, there's your low-variance people. Rudy Gobert, who is the 100th percentile in everything, all five statistical models. Clint Capella, 100th percentile to the 93rd, small window. Miles Turner, 100th to 89th. On the bad side, D'Angelo Russell, 7th to 0. This speaks to the one area of individual defensive impact that it seems like we can quantify pretty reasonably. The impact of a big man. Gobert, Capella, Turner, they've all made a living around the basket. And the ability to continually force opponents to shoot a lower percentage at the basket than their peers. That we have a pretty good understanding of and a pretty good way of showing through these statistical models. So that works for a select few big men. It works on the extreme end. D'Angelo Russell, he's very bad at defense. And every statistical model agrees. He just stands there on the perimeter and is a turnstile for whoever runs by him. But the vast majority of players are grouped into that middle. And we can't quantify what they do in a way that we want to in our minds, in a way that experts want to when they form these models. And so it pushes stuff onto our plate, the fans, the consumers. Something that I love and ties into the theme of this entire episode, that not everything can be measured and not everything can be known. The ball's back in our court. So I can consume as much information as I possibly want, and I can think freely with my own brain, and I can apply my own understanding of what I watch within a game, and I can combine all those things and form my own opinions, and I don't have to listen to Skip Bayless talk about his thoughts and opinions, and I don't have to watch SportsCenter and make up my mind about whether or not this person is good at defense. I, I can combine all of those things and go, okay, these games, these teams, these players, this, this, I think they're good. I think they're bad. This is based upon some information. This is based upon some statistics. And this is based upon some, my own personal perception of what I've watched. But it all ties into the thing that is great. The ways that each of these things can be measured and the ways that each of these things cannot. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This podcast can be found on any platform of your choosing. If you could rate and review and help spread the word, it would help me immensely. If you have additional feedback or thoughts that you want incorporated into the show, please email me at chris at thebeehive.com. Last but not least, if you would prefer to listen to this as a video, go to thebeehive.com and find No Baller.